0: Someone's a little flustered Someone this
1: afternoon. Someone is a little flustered with <laughs> butt bruises. Anyways.
0: Those things hurt, man. Oh, no, no, no. They- How about oh. some road rash? Oh. Ew, throw that in.
1: Do you get road rash? Have you had road oh, rash? Oh, yeah. I've
0: been in crashes before. Like, it was like my whole butt cheek was just. Can you hear me? Be true.
1: Stop it. <laughs> All right. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> oh, Lord. Too
0: much. Too
1: much. Hello. This is Can You Hear Me? Long Beach, a production of the High Low, the arts and culture section of the Long Beach Post. I am so flustered because Asia Morris, who's to my left. Hi, Asia. Hello. Has just been telling me stuff that I don't want to hear. And now I can't unsee in my mind. Mind. It's just, uh, Asia, say hello to everyone. Hey. Hey, um, we were talking just now about Road Rash, rash. okay, because um, Asia's a cyclist. Uh, we actually had a chance to interview the great Michelle Stylin. Michelle is the founder of Moxie Skates. Uh, Michelle is kind of one of, I would say, the leaders of the skate community here in Long Beach, which is strong. Very. Very strong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a
0: lot of personalities.
1: Oh. And the reason it, this thing about Road Rash came up is we were looking through Google and we saw some pictures in which Michelle was basically showing off just some horrendous bruises. She seemed almost happy. No, she did seem <laughs> it's happy. It's sort of
2: like a badge of honor. I, absolutely.
1: <laughs> you know what else is a badge of honor? What? To be in a major motion picture.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And Michelle is that. She is the, stan- is it the stand-in or the stunt double? I think stunt double. For uh, Margot Robbie in Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. And um, we had her in last week to talk about her favorite love songs. This week, we just talked about the skate scene here in Long Beach, about getting into movies, about um, how she got here from Philadelphia. She's, um, she's gone on quite a journey. And almost every step of the way, they've had wheels on them. Beach. Michelle, was this your first time on a movie set?
2: Yes. It was.
1: No kidding. And how did that come about?
2: Um, I got a call from a random number, and they asked me, "Are you Michelle Stylin or Estrogen?" I said, "Yes." They said, "Were you in Roller Derby Workout video?" We know the producers from that video, and they recommended you for this thing that we're doing. Um, Are you familiar with you know the DC comic series and Harley Quinn? We're going to be making a movie, and she is a roller skater in this film. Well, we asked the producer, of all the skaters that you know, where you need to fasten a really great skater behind a car. Um, do you know anyone that might be willing to do that? And her name's Go Go Gidget, and she said, Estrogen, she does that for fun. You would like Estrogen would love to do this. And they said that you like to do it for fun. And I said, Yeah, I love the skitch. It's called skitching, skating and hitching a ride. Right. And I would love to do it. So um it was interesting because I had been dating a stuntman for a couple of years before that call. We had just broken up. Oh. And so, but I knew a little bit about, like, what it was like to be a stunt person as far as, like, having a stunt kit and how to break, you know, how to baby step your way away from, like, how to climb yourself up to doing something really difficult. Right. Yeah, so... They asked me to audition and, or, you know, have, it was a kind of a private audition. Right. Um, I met the stunt coordinators at Venice beach skate park. And I came with a suitcase of all my different kinds of wheels and skates. And on the way up there, my, uh, my friend Dita was like, you know, they're going to want to know how fast you can go on the back of a car. And I was like, Oh shoot. Like we've only got a half an hour. <laughs> Do you mind? <laughs> we like pulled over to the side of the next smoothest street and I got to the back of the car and. She ran a couple of test trials and we got up to 44 miles per hour. And then I was like really confident and got to the park and pulled out all the tricks and all my dance moves. And then uh, they were like, yeah, you're the, the first thing they said was this is right. This is great. Like, yep, looks like her. Um, And then I showed them all my moves and they said, yep. This I think this is going to work out. And I said, don't you want to know how fast I can go? And they were like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you insane? <laughs> I was like, get in the back of my Honda. <laughs> I got something to show you. And they got in the back of the Honda, and then we did the test drive. Oh, my Lord. And I fell. Oh! <laughs> and I survived. And I was laughing maniacally. And they were just like, yeah, you're Harley Quinn. <laughs> and the more I really looked into Harley Quinn, I really, like, I really, like, I really identify
1: with that character. Did you see the first movie? Yeah. You did. You had seen it?
2: I hadn't seen it before the call. Oh, okay, you had. I didn't know much about Harley Quinn, except mm. that she was one of the only roller skating comic book characters that mm. existed. But I'm not um, really into any other people's storylines. Like, I'm not into, like, TV or movies or yeah. comic books. And
1: You're interesting enough for you.
2: Uh, life is interesting <laughs> enough. Life is yes. intense enough. Yes, it is. <laughs> And I have got a big imagination.
1: What was it like showing up on the set that first day?
2: Um, well, I didn't just show up on set. So there was so I was actually hired as one of the stunt team members, which mm-hmm. is um, was a totally eye-opening experience. Um, the other skaters that are in the film, there's a whole derby section. Mm-hmm. They hired um, Derby people to do the Derby section, and they did like, a rehearsal, uh, some rehearsals, and then they shot their scenes. But I was going into work every single day and training to be a Harley Quinn. Yeah. So as a stunt team member, you're like on a team. So everybody gets together in the morning and every morning they're doing some kind of different martial arts. So like Monday, it'll be judo and Tuesday, it'll be kickboxing. Wednesday, it'll be boxing. And so they train as a team, just their gen- their skills. So you read the script. So you know what the story is. That's right. one of the first things that you do. And the script is really difficult to read because you really have to imagine what's happening. Right. And, um, the stunt team is the group that gets together and collaborates all of their ideas and actually makes the action. So the stunt team's responsible for, like, all the visuals, all the fights. Um, they, so most days I wasn't working on – I was either – if I wasn't being used, I was swinging a mallet a thousand times. <laughs> But if I was being used, I was either like building sets or making weapons out of cardboard and pretending to be a bad guy or pretending to be a background person. So then we film the, the action, the the scenes, and then they send them to the production house and the director reviews them and then they send us their notes and then we refilm them, mm. and then they so we keep re we we're making the action so that they can have on the timeline the actual movie before they go to m- the movie sets, right. And then as far as, like, being on set, um, that happened way later. So I'm training in, like, I think it was October, November, December, and then we don't start shooting uh, our scenes until March and April. Mm. So um, when there were, like, on, there were location scenes, which were really exciting because, like, you're in downtown L.A., and... Um, it's, you just feel like you're in a movie. It's really
1: cool. You're in a movie feeling like you're in yeah. a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then you're, but then there were other scenes, like the fight scene at the very end, um, which was on a carousel, that was on the movie lot. And that was a completely different experience because it's all, you know, contained and mm. in a room. And well, the whole experience, like now that I see movies, if I watch, like when I watch a movie, I'm I can see whether things are like, Either on location or in, or probably in a studio, you mm. can kind of guess. And it was just um, the most amazing experience. There was a lot of downtime, mm. like so much. If you're not training, you're kind of sitting around. Right. That I wasn't used to at all. Um, the one of the most challenging parts in the very beginning was you, I really wanna, like, I've been in roller skating for so long and I haven't really gotten a taste of the outside world or it, any other industry right so i'm like real, i've got these people on a pedestal like these are freaking stunt, and it is it is the best stunt one of the best stunt team in the world mm. they're they're all internationals everyone has worked really 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 hard to get there right and everyone is a master like each stunt person it was like you know they're a gymnast they're a tricker they're a they're mixed martial artists. They're, they can do all different kinds of skills, and I want to impress them. But I've got to dismantle my ego, and, you know, you have to be really childlike. They're actors. Mm-hmm. They are acting, and, and I don't know how to act. I, mm-hmm. like, only know how to be myself. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so that was, that was also challenging.
1: The movie was significant because it really is the first big production that is almost oh. exclusively female. And I believe the director is female also.
2: Yeah, Kathy on. Who,
1: by the way, I think in the story we wrote about you, Kathy was actually going around the set on. on...
2: Yeah, she wanted roller skates. Michelle <laughs> is
1: the founder of Moxie Skates, which we'll talk about later. And she was skating Moxie Skates, right? Yeah, we hooked her up.
2: <laughs> She's like, I want to be roller skating. Was
1: like... What was it like on the set? I, I know it, it's fun to be on a Hollywood set. What was it like to be on that particular set given what was going on?
2: What's um, about. Ugh. Whoa! Like 2006, 14 years ago, I joined roller derby, and I have always skated. My dad and my sister both skateboard. I'm used to being in male-dominated spaces like, uh, like skate parks. And when so, I've always like I love skating at the skate park before I started playing roller derby. When I started playing roller derby, though. It was the first time that I was surrounded by all women, and it was the most elated feeling. Like women skating and going hard and falling and doing things that I'm used to at the skate park, but all together. And then when we were on the set, I could see that the other stunt women were having that experience. So when we would all get together, when the birds would convene in the middle of the carousel, which we had to do a lot— in the, in the beginning, they, I remember them having this conversation. Like, it's so crazy that we're not the only ones. Like, normally they feel like they're the only stunt woman on the set. So, but so having a bunch of women, it, like, got them really excited. And, um, yeah, it was just really cool camaraderie. It was really, I, it was, I have in in with that change. So it was just really cool to recognize it in another industry.
1: What was it like? When did you actually see the film? Like, sit down in a theater and see it?
2: I got to go to um, one of the first like blogger screenings. So that was last on the four on the twenty seventh, January twenty seventh. What what was that like? Well, that I went with my two the my staff, the people I work with, who like I had to <laughs> take off work for a few months to go work on this film. So my staff like really picked up a lot of mm-hmm. hats that I wear. Um, so we all went out together and. It was really nerve wracking. I couldn't really actually follow the thing because I'm like looking for every like there's right. just so many distractions. So then I saw it a second time when I went to the premiere and that it was, I really enjoyed the storyline. So, I mean, I love the movie. I would right. watch it 10 times in a row. It's it's really such a great movie. Mm. Harley Quinn is such a rad character and. The way that it's so... There's so much feminine energy that you never see in action films. It is just... I love this film. It's so exciting.
1: You, you're standing for not standing. You're a double for Margot Robbie. Yes. Now the makeup people can take care of the hair and the makeup and all that kind of stuff. But did you have to study? I know you helped her learn to roller skate. Although you said she was kind of a natural. She's a, a very good athlete.
2: Yeah, I wasn't the main trainer. Mm-hmm. Rachel uh, Johnson, um, Rachel Rotten mm-hmm. what They hired the derby. The, the derby unit was. Completely separate. I never worked with them. Yeah. Um, but the so the Derby unit was training Margot. When I would train with Margot, she would ask me like, "Hey, how do I stop at the edge of this carousel?" When we were doing the carousel scene, mm-hmm. I would help her a little bit, but she really didn't need a lot of help.
1: Did you have to learn how to move your body like her body so that it would match up on film? Did you look at what her style was and things like that? so that it, there wouldn't be any kind of palpable difference between the two?
2: I had very little experience in um, any martial arts. Mm. So th- that's the first thing that they started working on with me is like how to, how to kick, do all the different kinds of kicks with the skates on and how to swing a mallet and how to swing a baseball bat. And I would stand in front of an asterisk and swing this stuff for two, like really like 2,000 times a day. Like I would watch Thor mm-hmm. because he swings a mallet, and I would try to get creative with all the different. But then there were uh, like Tara Mackin, um, she's one of the best stunt women in the world, and Renee Moneymaker, who is also um, the two of them, and Haley Wright, they and Anisha, the, all the birds helped me. Like right. Anisha's this amazing kicker; she's just like got, the, she's just got these. Cra- she's the craziest kicker, and Tara is just incredible at everything, and all of them would like get, I, ha, I needed so many notes. Mm-hmm. I needed so much help and assistance. So they would help me.
1: The way those fight scenes are choreographed, I imagine it's almost like ballet, right? I mean, it's like the movement, everything has to be exact. Cause if not, you get punched in the face.
2: Yeah. And it's like stunt people, like the stunt world and skate world are so different. Like it's all about safety. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, all the stunt, the reason why we're doing stunts is to make the stars look great And as the stars are going to do as much action as they possibly can. So when it's extremely important that you have your marks, because if I swung a mallet into Ewan McGregor's face, I'd be fired on set (laughs) and then they'd be screwed and out of a skate double. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's really important that you remember your marks and that you get that right. you know, there's a lot to learn in martial arts. You have to learn how to swing on the right and on the left. And in skating, you just kind of choose what's more friendlier to your side. Oh, okay. And, yeah, in skating, it's like you you work up to the land. Right. Where in stunts, it's as long as you can pull it off. You know, you they wear – there's a lot of cables and wires involved. Um, at one point, <laughs> they were <laughs> – we were talking about uh, flipping over the car, and Renee MoneyMaker does the the big flip over the car, mm. um, and she was like Margot's main double, so she was able to do any any of the action that she wanted to. So when we're doing the we're practicing that we're working out those stunts, um, that backflip one, uh, they had me on a wire, and I was like, oh, this is a really great time to learn a Gainer backflip. Like in the back of my mind, I want to Gainer backflip out of a ramp. So they put me on this wire and I called a friend and I was like, give me every single like tip on a gainer backflip that, you know, he did. And then I just thought about it and went for it and let these guys like pull on these wires and hurl me into the air. And I guess I was really natural at it. I was able to like Christ air and split kick and easily flip with a wire. And I really felt like I almost could do it without the wire. So as soon as like they were all done, you know, testing the the wire stuff, I got unleashed, and I was like, "Okay, now I want to do it without the wire." And they're like, "No." Yeah. And I was like, "No. What do you mean? I just learned it. It's fresh. If I do it, then I'll be able to have it." And they're like, "You're crazy." And I'm like, "I'm gonna do it on mats." And I like set up the mats and did it, and I learned the trick there. And you do sketch. Yeah. In the movie, right? So I'm sketching.
1: And how fast was it? So you can do 40. How were they doing N- 40? Not
2: 15. <laughs> they're doing.
1: You seem disappointed.
2: Uh, well, no, it was that was okay. The highlight of the whole experience was sketching on the back and falling. And so the whole production crew was in this little alley, and I fall off the back of the car on purpose or by no, mistake. Oh, I okay. just was really feeling it. Like okay. everybody loved the action. I'm like, yeah dodging bullets and going right and left and like exaggerating my leg motions and feeling really good. And I just got overly confident and I fell off the back of my heels. Well, there's a camera car next to you. So you want to, and I got up right away, but like, because of the camera car and because I fell, there's like 200 people that just like, what, she fell. Like they were really concerned. The medics come running over and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. And the medic's like, no, you're not, look at your elbows. And the makeup person's like, those are my elbows, see? (laughs) Like, that's not real blood. And I'm like, I'm really fine. And I just hear the stunt coordinator Jojo yell from the alley if she says she's all right, trust me, she's made a rhino skin. Reset. (laughs) So everybody just stopped and we reset. And I got tipped out that night. And it was just, that was a cool experience.
1: Now, the movie is, is fantastic. It tells a fantastic story, but your own story is fantastic because you come from?
2: Philadelphia. Now, when you came out
1: here, how many years ago?
2: Um, I moved, I graduated from Temple University in 2005 okay. and I moved right out to California.
1: So when you were coming out to California, what did you see as your life in California? I came from the weather. The weather. Okay. Well, I went just to the beach on the
2: first day and I was heartbroken. Why? That the, I thought the water was going to be clear. Oh no. Like, I don't know why. I. Which didn't, beach did you go to? In my mind, Manhattan beach. Okay. I was like, there's a... There's a chevron refinery on the – there's caution tape on my leg. Like, what? This place is not You probably not thought what the I water's going to be warm too, right? Yeah. But um, I have a lot of metal in my leg. I broke my leg in a motorcycle accident when I was 16, and I'm really active. Yeah. And th- I get seasonal depression, like, because mm. I can't – it just – it hurts. I limp Or at Christmas time when I go home. I I just really need consistent weather. Yeah. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. My mom was like, you got to go to college. You have to have to go to college. What your you major in? Psychology and cognitive uh, neuroscience. Okay. All similar right. to Harley Quinn. Sure. <laughs> That's was, true, right? Yeah, yeah. She also went to college on a gymnastics scholarship. And I went to college on a cheerleading scholarship. Weird. And I'm a gymnast. Wow. Yeah. We both fell in love with the Joker. <laughs> ah, and you both mutually broke up. Yeah. And I'm doing the
1: air quotes. <laughs> mutually broke up. Yeah.
2: Um, But I came out here uh, for the weather. And also, I didn't want to continue. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to keep going to school. I really didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't want... It. When you're in studying psychology, to get your master's or doctorate, you really have to choose a discipline. And there's only a handful of them. then... I didn't really, I believed in mixed disciplines. And when I was looking at master's programs, I just didn't like the design of having to pick this one route. And so I just decided that I was gonna take a year off and hopefully inspiration would strike. So I, with only a backpack, my neighbor gave me a skateboard. I didn't have a car for the first six years I was out here. I got a waitressing job. Um, I babysat for my boss at the restaurant I eventually met someone that wanted, that knew that I knew a whole lot about the action sports. I worked at this like action sports skate camp that had a lot of, um, I was an arts and crafts teacher there where they taught skateboarding and BMX and those types of sports. And so I got hired as an intern, as a PR director at this action sports firm. And then I became, I was an intern and then I worked up to being a PR director and I was writing letters about, BS, really. And I just thought, I should write a quality letter for myself. And Mm. I wrote a letter to one of the roller skating manufacturers, all of them actually. And then um, the one in the United States responded to me and I was just blown away because, you know, almost 100% of our shoes are made overseas. There aren't any shoe factories here. And the fact that roller skates, like something I really, really love, is still made here was like, Mm wow, I want to work with them. Like
1: what? <laughs> this is a how mission. Had, how long had roller skating been part of your life?
2: My whole, like my dad tried to like force feed us into skateboarding. Okay. Like when we were, <laughs> as soon as Lauren like turned six, he took us to the top of the biggest hill in Perkesee. And <laughs> he's like, just roll down, like roll down. You're going to have to learn to fall. Like just, Like, basically, hurt yourself. We're going to get back up over and over today. (laughs) We were having a little fun until it got scary. I crashed into a curb. I was bleeding. And I remember being like, okay, I'm bleeding. Let's all go now. (laughs) And my dad being like, no, if you want to go, you can go home. But Lauren and I are going to keep here. This is Stay here. This is what this is about. Uh, You know, you get up after you fall. It's not. You know, you need a Band-Aid, big deal, let it dry. Right. It was tough. Yeah. (laughs) And I bailed on them. My sister learned to skateboard. And then uh, I just kind of, I just hated skateboarding, and they skated, and I hated it because I didn't like it. And I did flips in the backyard and played in the grass and um, begged for a trampoline. Our yard wasn't big enough. I asked for those Nickelodeon moon shoes. They're, like, personal strap-on, like, trampoline shoes. Right. (laughs) I thought that would be the better answer. And... My dad instead, he's an antique dealer, he got, uh, he brought home from the flea market. They're like, they're it's like old school metal skates that have, it's like a metal pla- steel platform. And it's got a leather buckle and on the bottom are steel wheels. The, that's how the old school skates are. But instead of the steel wheels, someone had, someone had welded like big, like thick bed springs on the bottom. So they were like the, you know, old poor man's version of the moon shoes. So I strapped them on my feet, and I'm like, oh, these are so awesome. But sometimes I wouldn't get it right, and my ankles would twist, and my dad's like, nah, your mom's going to kill me. You're going to hurt your ankles. <laughs> Give me those back. And I just threw the biggest fit, and he like, go inside the house, and if you stop crying, I'll come back with something for you. And so he came back with a pair of roller skates. I just want
1: to go back. Your dad was a skate punk antique dealer. That is just <laughs> – that's awesome. That's a – that's a sitcom right there. That's amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. I love my dad. Cool. I love him. So you're out here, did you did you
1: move to Long Beach right away or how how did you come
2: I first moved Well, first I moved to the Sheraton. Um my boyfriend at the time was building the X Games ramps. Oh. So I lived there for like 6 weeks oh. and then I got that I got that job. Mm. I decided they they were going to keep going on some ramp tour. Like, they had a couple of other jobs across the country they were going to keep going. And I thought, and we went surfing once. (laughs) This is so weird. We all, this girl took us surfing, um, and all the BMX riders that we were with who were, like, really athletic weren't getting it. And for some reason, I could pop up every time. (laughs) Like, this girl was, Laurel, was like, you're really good at surfing. Like, you're really good. Like, they're natural. Probably your
1: cheerleading background, right? Balance and all that stuff? Maybe. Yeah.
2: I don't know. Rest. It doesn't end that way. But so I I was like, (laughs) she said, "You should just stay. Why would you go? Like, why are you gonna? You're gonna go on this ramp tour? Why don't you just stay in my extra like room in my apartment?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll get a job. Like, I'll stay. Like, hey, can I stay? Like, you can come back here. And that's how I moved here. But I, yeah. So surfing, I thought I was gonna move here because. Well, like I like surfing. I, I, it was a great. I mean, it was a good idea. Maybe I'll get into surfing, and I so I moved, and then I went out twice a day every single day for like months, and I couldn't get up. Oh, wow! <laughs> now I surf. Now I surf, and I've got good friends that like have taught me. But back then, for some reason, I could. It didn't click. After I had beginner's luck.
1: Oh, okay. That's what it was. Yeah. How so? How does how does Moxie come along?
2: I wrote that letter to the roller skating manufacturer. They asked to meet me. I showed them a presentation about opening up an outdoor roller skating market that um, really promoted just skating for fun and not skating for sport. And they said, you're gonna have to prove that there's a market out there because we're not like a giant company, we're a small company. And we need to know that there's traction. You need to build the traction first. So I had pitched the idea of opening up my own store. So I opened up a store on 4th Street. I asked uh, Jorge first that owns Replay if I could get in the back of his store. Uh, I ended up working his store and doing all kinds of work for him. So then my next-door neighbor, Pete, invited me to move over there. So then I moved in the back of that store. Then we just had so much business that we had to move into our own store. So we moved into Suja Lowenthal's old office, Mm -hmm. and that's where the store exists now. Less than two years, we had the skates. So I think it was like six to nine months of sales um, and the factory was like, yeah, uh, Rydell is the name of the factory. Rydell was like, yeah, we totally want to support your idea of making a brand. Let's make some samples um, because the outdoor skates were selling so well. So roller derby was really the only big sales that they were having. They're an ice skating company. But on the roller side, roller derby was the the it. Um, so I was teaching free lessons and doing like critical mass style street skates and just promoting roller skating as much as I could. and. We got a lot of, we got a whole lot of, a whole lot of roller skaters coming out of the woodworks. Long Beach used to be a hotbed for roller skating back in the 80s. There was a giant, um, you know, Fred Kumar. Yeah, Alfred's, Alfred is on the beach. He, oh, okay. Yeah. He's just passed a couple of years ago. Amazing man. Just, mm-hmm. um, he was a skater and he used to run these like giant marathons uh, here in Long Beach. And, I don't know. I opened up this store and people for local Long Beachers would come in and be like, who the hell are you? I'm the skater. You think you're the skater? Like, well, (laughs) let's skate together. And that just happened so many times over and selling so many skates. And then they were like, "Okay, let's start the brand. And then we started the brand. And then I just I really from that marketing experience like that, the at the Action Sports Marketing Agency, I really learned I had this goal of mine is to create a brand about roller skating that cater that brings roller skating back mm-hmm. and takes it out of the black and white television and puts it into color and makes it vibrant again and revitalizes it. So I knew I wanted to get out of the store mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh I sold the store. I opened up a bunch of other stores. So the skates sell in 400 other stores. Okay. Um, Urban Outfitters was one of our first customers um, to pick it up. And when Urban picked it up, a lot of publicists saw the product and um, a lot of celebrities got on it. And it's just been, yeah, it's success here and there and and weird grassroots ways that have built it.
1: Speaking of grassroots, so what sells Moxie is not just the quality of the product, but the brand means something. Hell Yeah. What do you see as your story? What is Moxie's story?
2: Well, the name actually comes from, um, it's an essence. You know, roller skating, to me, is a feeling of relief and grounding and freedom, and you're just, you're it detaches you from the mundane world. It makes the spaces in between, getting from one place to another, so much more fun. Um, you can see so much more. Like when you travel to other cities, like going to Paris with a pair of skates is incredible. You can see, you can experience so much more organically. And that this essence is like, it can't, what name could you really put on it? So I didn't have a name for the store for so long I had estrogen, my roller derby name, and my friends that skated that were buying skates for me. I became great friends with our UPS guy. And he was like, Michelle, you need a name for your store. You're getting packages every day now. Like, you've got a business. This is going to work out for you. What name are you going to name it? And I was like, there's no word good enough for what this is that I'm making. And he said, all right, do you need some help? I said, yeah, I need help. I want a name. I just don't know what name to put on it. So he came in the next day and he was like, hey, Michelle, I saw a picture of you advertising roller derby down the street. You know what? You had a lot of moxie. And I was like, what's that? And then he walked out. I don't know. Look it up. (laughs) So then I looked it up and it means bravery, strength, gusto, know-how, whiz. Like It's just this word that encompasses an essence, an energy that who knows where it's going, but it's going and it's great. So that's...
1: You know, when Michelle showed up at the office today, she was just so sad because our office is really cool and it's very, um, the floor is all this beautiful kind of burnished concrete. And you said this is one of the few times you were not wearing roller skates. And you made us realize this would be a perfect place to roller skate, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. You (laughs) want to party? I have thousands of pairs of roller skates and an ice cream truck parked in front of my house.
1: Michelle, thanks for being here. Nancy Linnae Wu is everywhere, Asia. Everywhere. We were just saying, who are the three people we see everywhere?
0: I swear they all have teleportation devices.
1: These people are Sanai, mm-hmm. Richard, Richard Shimizu, mm-hmm. and Nancy. They are everywhere. So when we came, when we figured out we wanted a literary column, Nancy was the person we wanted. And um, we pursued Nancy for a long time. <laughs> she played a little coy. Um, but eventually we got her. And now Nancy is gonna be writing, at least for now, a once monthly literary column. Uh, the first one ran on Tuesday, and it was all about the uh, rather vibrant storytelling scene in Long Beach. So you were originally from Long Beach? Am I from Long Beach? Yeah. Actually,
0: no. Where are you from? I'm from Huntington Beach. No kidding. Yeah, but I... uh, You say that
1: like you're ashamed or something. I left. (laughs) I left that place. You got out of that place. (laughs) Yeah. You came right to
0: Long Beach? Actually, I went up to Santa Cruz Mm -hmm. for college. And then when I came to Long Beach, I realized it was kind of like a big urban Santa Cruz. No kidding. Yeah. So Hmm. fun times, you know?
1: What's it like for a kid to tell their folks, I'm going to be a poet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, My dad actually told me, okay, mm, no. (laughs) If you want to be a writer, that's great. But the only job for writers is to be a journalist. Basically, yeah, which I did for a while. And you're doing that. And now, once again, there goes
1: the circle is complete.
0: Yeah. Oh, he also said you can write songs, like be a lyricist to write for musicians. And I was like, well, that's cool, but Hallmark greeting cards. I've also gotten that one. That's like (laughs) totally legit. You know, we have to make a living somehow.
1: (laughs) How did I'm just curious. How did you come to that? Poet is one of those things. That actually we all are in some way, mm-hmm. I guess. I do believe that. Right? Yes. And you teach it? Mm-hmm. You teach fifth graders? I do. Oh, so I teach
0: them exactly what you said. They See? were all poets, and they make some amazing poems.
1: But how do, how do you come to a point where you say, well, not only do I have this in me, this is what I want to make my life. How did that happen for you? Oh, geez.
0: Well, I was one of those secret writers, so of course I started writing as soon as I could, basically, and I just borrowed it away in my little teenage angst. But, you know, after I finished college, I came back to Long Beach, actually. So from Huntington Beach, my mom had moved to Long Beach. And Mm -hmm. as a broke college student, I lived with her for a little while. Mm -hmm. So I ended up here accidentally, sort of. And I ended up falling into a group of poets. They just happened to be here already. It felt really serendipitous. Mm -hmm. And I just found them, started meeting people. I actually went to an open mic. I googled open mic near me. You know, yeah. and just showed up at, I think it was Viento y Iagua for the first open mic I ever went to here and just met a, met a few people. Everyone, this is why I say Long Beach is so warm and welcoming. I just showed up, I was very shy. I just sat in a corner by myself, and like three different people came up to me and were like, Hey, we've never seen you here before. Hi. And they introduced themselves. Nice. <laughs> and one of them ended up being someone I, you know, knew for a few years. And from there, I just learned that other people were doing this crazy thing of writing. And, you know, the open mic had music and other things as well. But essentially, I saw living poets. Hmm. And I was like, oh.
1: Like they actually exist. They
0: actually exist. Because people,
1: like, do stuff.
0: They do. And they had books. Some of them had books. And some of them were performing. Mm -hmm. And this was, like, a legitimate thing that people were doing.
1: Mm. Your, your first column for us, which uh, we're doing this on Tuesday. You're probably listening to this on Thursday or Friday. Um, Nancy's column is up, and it's all about storytelling mm-hmm. and how storytelling has become like a, a thing, like a big thing now. And people are familiar with things like The Moth. Long Beach has a lot of this. And the same thing that you described for you, going to that initial open mic, is very much true for storytelling, right? Like people should not feel intimidated. They can go to practically any one of these, get up, tell the story and people are pretty welcoming, right?
0: Oh, for sure. Absolutely. The storytelling open mics here are kind of like a continuation of, you know, the general open mic scene. But I even think it's a little bit more accessible because you don't even have to have written something. You don't even have to have, have a poem. Mm-hmm. You, you don't necessarily have to have a story or fiction, you know, it, Yeah, I think it opens the door because we all tell stories. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, no matter who you are, even if you don't think you're a writer or an artist or creative, although everyone's creative, Mm -hmm. you can just share a story. What happened to you? And like, well, typically like five minutes or less. Right. Yeah. And then you get gonged. Yeah, you know, the (laughs) the timing is one of the most difficult things about going up to an open mic when you first start is like, oh... I didn't realize I've been talking for 10 minutes.
1: But sometimes, I saw that in your piece, sometimes it's the other way, like you think you've been talking forever and they're like, yeah, that's a minute and a half, you got another four minutes, like, oh, what do I say? Oh, uh, like, well,
0: yeah. that's really because like you're a fast talker, I'm a fast <laughs> talker too, I get the same thing, I'm like, oh, I've only been going for three minutes, right. I feel like I've said 15 things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you go to open my poetry, you've done that, have you story, done storytelling yourself?
0: So I did once with Ann Van Wellman's mm-hmm. um, The Speakeasy, which okay. is at Deep Piazza's. And that's
1: speak, period, easy, period. Exactly. Okay.
0: Yes. Um, she asked me to go. It was their first one, and so it was kind of one of their, you know, warm-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was okay. What'd you talk about? <laughs> I talked about a time in high school when I almost flunked out of it and didn't go to college and the, how I kind of turned that around mm. and ended up going to UC Santa Cruz. And, uh, you know, my motivation for going to Santa Cruz, which was romping in the forest with deer. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> that's that's part of the double major, right? Yeah yeah yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. Romping and the deer, two majors. Yeah. yeah. The you, Now, the one you describe in your piece, uh, Riveted, that actually is not an open mic, right? That is for we were talking about this. There are now basically professional storytellers, yeah. right? This has become a, a professional.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the cool thing about Riveted, I mean, I love all of these storytelling events, but Riveted has both elements. So they have a featured storyteller portion of the night, which is four of them, four featured storytellers. And then there's a little break, and then there's an open mic afterwards. So the cool thing about this last Riveted, Steven Diebel, who's the uh, creator of this show, told me that... Half of the people who went up on the open mic didn't plan on that when they walked in the door. Oh. Like they actually just were so inspired that they wanted to get up and try their hand at, at it. And they were pretty good. Like it's it was all entertaining. It was all yeah.
1: pretty good. Okay, now this is so unfair. But what is going on? Uh, again, you you state in your piece that storytelling predates written literature. People sitting around talking about the hunt, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, It's always been available. Why do you think it is now? It is becoming kind of codified, and again, people consider themselves professional storytellers. What's going on now that people want to go out and hear this stuff?
0: So I think a lot of it has to do with the internet, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, The internet has democratized communication in so many ways, as we know. And while we're all telling our stories online, I mean, a lot of us, Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) Instagram, Uh, Reddit, you know, all the forums. Um, I think these storytelling events are really appealing because it restores that face to face interaction of communication. Right. Um, In a real life setting, I mean, you know, you can stay at home every single night and read stories on your computer or watch netflix and that's you know totally fine like that's a great form of entertainment but i do think there's this need there's this drive like there's this desire of humans to be face to face like mm-hmm. sitting around that campfire telling yeah. stories so i think these storytelling events are sort of a like a feeling of that need we
1: want that you make a point early in the column to say, yes, storytelling is literature. Do you get pushback sometimes? Or are there some people who are like, well, it's not written. It's just people chit-chat. That's mm-hmm. just talk. You know, we were joking. That's just going to a bar. Uh, do you get pushback about c- calling it literature?
0: <laughs> well, what's funny is I was just having a conversation the other day with, uh, you know, what is art with a capital A? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of that idea, like literature with a capital L. <laughs> And I mean, I just started, uh, just started writing specifically about storytelling. So in this particular vein, no. I haven't mm. really gone like pushback in my head, I guess. I'm getting right. pushback. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but I do think we do have kind of a conception of literature as what we were taught in high school, you know, like our classics, our classic mm. literature. right. And I do think that literature, again, partially because of the open air marketplace of the internet, um, literature is becoming a lot more grounded in our everyday lives. I think that we could, I mean, we could go down the rabbit hole of what is real art. Mm -hmm. But I do think that storytelling in this context with these events, I think it's literature Mm -hmm. because literature is using language. In an artistic way. And mm-hmm. these storytelling events, when you see these featured storytellers, this, there's craft to it. They definitely have their, their intro, their climax, their mm-hmm. denouement. <laughs> like they give you the elements that yeah. you've learned, you know, the really, really good ones anyway. Yeah. Um, so for that reason, I do think, you know, you can classify storytelling in this context as literature. Sure, I know there are people who will disagree, but I'm gonna have my take on it.
1: Nancy, in her piece, said that uh, literature just isn't dead white guys <laughs> writing about whales and missing girls, which I love. It's great. It really is a skill, and, and it is true that when—and you point this out in your piece. You could just be at a party or something like that, <laughs> Sometimes maybe a grandmother or an uncle, your mom starts telling a story and you're like, oh, Lord. You know, and she, like my mom, who I love, will start telling a joke. And it'll be like, so this guy's walking down the street. Well, he's kind of, you know, he's wearing sneakers and he's walking down the street. Okay, and, and it's kind of hot. I think, Yeah, it's hot. Okay, it's hot. and you're like, is this really germane? Do we need Now, he's walking down the street. Wait, no, wait, he's, he's on the other side of the street. Okay, now. And then when you're with someone, and they know how to tell a story, you almost know, almost instantaneously, and you point out in your piece, there's this, or it might be a quote you use, that you just relax, and you just give over to this person and say, take me, just take me wherever you want to go, and it's such a wonderful kind of moment of trust, and on their part, they can do that for you, and it's so wonderful when that happens. I think that even happens when you sit and watch a movie sometimes, In about the first five minutes, you're like, okay, we're going to be just fine here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was a quote from Tony Hoagland in his book, The Art of Voice. So voice is an element of craft in literature, is using a, um, well, voiciness. When you Mm -hmm. have a voiciness, you have a certain casual way of talking. And, you know, each storyteller, I think, each one of us, but when... You're a storyteller. You have a a unique voice that you bring out. And by the way, I tell stories more like the way your mom tells (laughs) stories, which is why I'm a poet. There you go. There you go. (laughs) But there is something really pleasurable about leaning back and letting someone just sort of craft a world Mm -hmm. around you. And that, to me, is what, what made me fall in love with literature.
1: Yeah. So you're going to be writing this column for us. We're very excited. It's so funny to hear that there was a time when Nancy Lene Wu didn't know anyone <laughs> and no one knew her because the re- we have literally aggressively pursued Nancy <laughs> for months to write this column because we knew we wanted this column and we knew we didn't want anybody else to write it because Nancy is oh, any event you go to, there's Nancy. A- anything you hear about, she's the one emailing you. How, how did this transformation happen that you go from the young woman in the corner that people are saying, and who are you? To, Nancy, that is at everything, and that knows everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, that's well. Thank you. I think that's it's kind of funny to think about that. I think I'm, I am, um, I'm aggressively stubborn, <laughs> and I will, when I find something that I really love, I won't let it go. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a magnet on my fridge. It says, "Find something you like and do it forever." Mm. So that's kind of my philosophy. I found poetry, or rather, it found me. Who knows? We could. You know, I woke up one day when I was eight years old and I was a poet. So (laughs) um, I think it's in my nature. I think that some people are born with certain propensities towards a thing, Mm -hmm. multiple things maybe. But, you know, my brain naturally cartwheels in language. And if I try to stop that, I start to die a little bit. I know that sounds very melodramatic, but I'm a poet, so I'm allowed to do that. Yes, you are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've given a pass. You were eight. Do you remember what your gateway poem drug was? I
0: do. Oh, cool. It was a gift, which is also, looking back, my philosophy on poems is that they're little gifts to the world. So my first poem was a gift to my fourth grade teacher, and it was about elves. You wrote this. I wrote a poem Uh, about elves. Okay. No, that's all I remember. You don't remember
1: anything about it? No. Did it rhyme, or was it It definitely rhymed. It didn't rhyme. We're going to, you're going to be writing all about the scene here in Long Beach in just very general terms. What is the Long Beach literary scene like as far as, I mean, we, we can talk about what the music scene is like. We know what the visual arts is like. What is the literary scene like? Is it vibrant? Is there, is it active and organized? Is it kind of fractured? What's it like?
0: Oh, man. Okay. So literary scene here in Long Beach, it's very, I've used this word already. already, but it's very welcoming. Like... You can just kind of show up and people will kind of, sort of embrace you. Um, it's very family-like. There's a, very, there's a strong sense of community. And I think that's because we're getting up there and you're being so vulnerable. You might go to a poetry open mic and read a poem about like the worst moment in your life or about this horrible thing that happened to you. And we kind of form an instant kinship in that regard. So it's very honest. The Long Beach literary scene is very honest. We're Mm -hmm. very, there tends to be a very conversational tone in Mm -hmm. our storytelling and poetry. Uh, It's like kind of organized and kind of scattered at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of little pockets of of amazing things happening. I mean, just putting my attention on the scene in this way for this column, Mm -hmm. I'm noticing things that I hadn't even noticed before. Like... There are lots of little workshops, lots of little, you know, I don't want to say little, but there are a lot of workshops, a Mm -hmm. lot of readings, a lot of spaces for writers and for people who love literature to get together. Um, So I'd say it's actually more dispersed than it is organized. That also leaves room for people to connect on a very intimate setting. So I'd say the, the literary scene is very intimate, just kind of naturally.
1: If someone wanted to do what you did, wh- where are the places that they should be hanging at? Where are the salons that they can go to and just hang out and maybe meet other writers and, and do what you did?
0: Yeah. What's funny is that the, the open mics that I went to when I first started are no longer around. So the scene is also often very shifting. Okay. I will say that too. Um, but if you're interested in poetry, Vantuiagua ha- still has um, a poetry reading mm-hmm. once a month. Fox Coffee House has a really, really, really well-attended and very boisterous, like really high-energy poetry reading. Okay, called the Definitive Soapbox, mm-hmm. which has been around for about ten years. Right. They do the Long Beach Poetry Slam as well. Um, there's a bunch of open mics that are not specific to poetry, but you know, music and other stuff too. There's one at Halada Gallery called Imagine an Open Mic. Shy But Fly, who mm-hmm. hosted Riveted, she has one. At Shades of Africa, every Saturday, I believe. Um, Yeah, there's just, there's a ton.
1: (laughs) And then in your piece, you mentioned, I think, at least three uh, storytelling Mm. things that are ongoing. One of them where you can win 100 bucks.
0: Yeah, that one. That one's been around for a while, too. Um, It's called Long Beach Searches for Greatest Storyteller. Mm. And that's at Mulaney's bar in Alamitos Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's actually a cash prize. Dang. Yeah. Sweet. First Monday of the month, I think.
1: Just curious, you have any idea what you're going to write about next?
0: Ooh, You know what? I like to float around <laughs> and let inspiration strike. So I definitely know. You do? <laughs> <laughs>
1: How was it doing it this first time? So this this is actually, but you, you've you been a journalist before, right? You told me you used to cover yeah. like city council and I stuff did. like that. I did. I did some city council.
0: Well, I didn't enjoy the it. city beat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did like the features. Whenever I got yeah. like the special feature story mm-hmm. I got to do, that was the best. That was yeah. super fun. But I guess I wasn't, my aggressive stubbornness led me
1: towards poetry. <laughs> my aggressive stubbornness, the Nancy Wooster. I can see yeah. that on a book. By the way, when you talk, you're very, like, I, I you do that when it, she's, uh, like, mm, like, very movement-oriented. Yeah, very nice. I
0: know. I'm trying to, like I said, I'm trying to, trying to keep it in um, <laughs> to get my mouth towards the mic. But I am, uh, I like to say poetry is my first love, but I'm a dancer at heart.
1: Oh, that's... Very poetic.
0: Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Nancy. All right. Thank you, Steve.
1: Long Beach, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Long Beach is a production of the Long Beach Post. Publisher is David Summers. Uh, managing editor is Melissa Evans. Thanks to everybody, especially the people who helped us out on the podcast today. Um, and of course thanks to the Mountain Goats for their song Paid in Cocaine and the people at Merge Records for letting us play it uh, please listen wherever you do listen and if you like subscribe if you like what we're doing here at the Long Beach Post you can always help out you know with kind words maybe a nice thought or maybe some cash. whatever you want to <laughs> do there's uh, avenues for doing all that thanks a lot